Again, I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. Buzz Eisenberg is off today. I'd like to begin by sharing with you the front page story on today in today's Republican newspaper. Limits on cell phone location data sought. Bill seeks to restrict information sold to third parties. This by Julia Chilman Hall, uh, a Mass Live, that is Republican newspaper reporter. Let me share with you a couple of sentences. Abortion rights advocacy is moving into a new arena in the years since the U.S. Supreme Court overruled Roe versus Wade. Cell phone data privacy. Reproductive advocacy groups, including Reproductive Equity Now, the ACLU of Massachusetts, and Planned Parenthood Advocacy Fund of Massachusetts are working to support the Location Shield Act, which is House Bill 357, which would ban the selling, leasing, trading, or renting of cell phone location data. If the legislation passes, Massachusetts would be the first in the nation to protect cell phone users' location data, according to Kate Crockford, ACLU of Massachusetts Technology for Liberty Program Director. We have with us today the aforementioned Kate Crockford, who is the Director of the Technology for Liberty Program at the ACLU of Massachusetts. Kate, thank you so much for being with us. I really appreciate it, and I'd like you to tell us more about this bill. First, what it will do, and then why does it matter? Sure. Um, good morning. Thanks for having me, Bill. It's nice to be on your show. Um, this legislation is very straightforward. It does pretty much one simple thing, and that is to prohibit companies from selling information derived from our cell phones, showing where we go 24 hours, seven days a week, 365 days a year. There is a massive some people estimate $12 billion a year market um, that is purely based off of companies selling our cell phone location information. And this poses pretty serious threats to all of us, frankly, but particularly to vulnerable people, to people who are in dangerous situations for example, people who are coming to Massachusetts to benefit from our robust reproductive health access laws in the wake of the Dobbs decision after abortion has been banned in their home states. We want to make sure that any person who comes to Boston or Worcester or Springfield or any other place in Massachusetts to access abortion care that's banned in their home state cannot be tracked by a person who simply pulls out their credit card and logs on to a location data broker website and buys information that shows every person who leaves, for example, Texas and comes to a Planned Parenthood clinic in Massachusetts. Um, there are far too many threats to people's privacy in the 21st century we are leaving tons of digital information behind us everywhere we go. We believe location data is particularly important to protect because it, it affects all of us 
And it doesn't just show one interest of ours or one association or one trip to one abortion clinic. This data shows everywhere we go and therefore reveals all of our movements, our habits, our associations. Um, it's an incredibly dangerous industry and we're really looking forward to being the first in the country to put a stop to it once and for all. Uh, Kate Crawford, director of the ACLU of Massachusetts Technology for Liberty program, could you go back one second and pause to share with us what you meant or what you mean when you said we leave behind this technological trail of information about where we've been, our location data. Really? I, my cell phone is broadcasting where I am 24 hours a day when it's on, when it's off? What, what information is out there? Well, Bill, most people don't turn their cell phones off. <laughs> so, <laughs> and most people carry their cell phones with them literally everywhere they go, including I think many of us uh, might be ashamed to admit, but it's true, to the bathroom. Uh, <laughs> these devices <laughs> these devices are almost an extension of our bodies at this point. Um, we sleep with them right by our heads. You know, We take them everywhere they go. If they're not in our pocket, they're in our hand or in, on the table in front of us. And so it's essentially a tracking device um, that we have appended to our bodies. And, you know, cell phones are obviously incredibly useful. You know, we carry them with us everywhere we go because they open up the world to us, right? You can communicate with anybody. You can query any information that's available on the internet. You know, it's right at your fingertips. So it's not a mystery. Um, they're incredible devices. But um, one of the problems- Could you stop there for one sec? The way that technology- yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, let me just ask you. So uh, you subscribe to uh, AT&T or Verizon uh, or one of the other big carriers. Everywhere you go, every second, that company has a record of where you've been. Is that what you're saying? So there are a bunch of different ways that location information is collected by various different types of companies. And I'm glad that you brought up telecoms. Um, you know, we pay our cell phone providers however much money a month for them to provide us with service, um, including uh, internet data, obviously. And um, in 2020, the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, got very upset when reporters disclosed that some telecoms were in fact selling our very sensitive cell phone location records to data brokers. Um, the FCC stepped in and said, oh, no, you don't. That's illegal because there's a law from 1934 called the Communications Act, a federal law that gives the FCC pretty wide authority to regulate telecoms. And among those regulations are privacy rules. So the FCC basically said, hey, guys, just so you know, we consider cell phone location information to be among the types of data that telecoms are not allowed to disclose to, you know, third parties. And so the telecom said, oops, okay, sorry, we'll stop doing that, basically. However, there's a whole other class of company 
that are not telecoms, that are not regulated by the FCC, app developers, namely, that are indeed collecting very detailed cell phone location information and selling it uh, to data brokers. And so that is what we're trying to address with this legislation. The FCC, the FTC, the Supreme Court, all of these federal institutions have identified the sensitivity, have named the sensitivity of location data. We can talk more about what the Supreme Court has said later if you want, but the FTC just last year under the leadership of uh, the very aggressive and wonderful regulator, Lena Khan, sued one of these location data brokers after the FTC did an investigation that found just appalling privacy violations. Unfortunately, that lawsuit was, was thrown out of federal court. Um, again, the FCC stepped in and said, hey, telecoms, you're not allowed to sell this information that violates federal law. But there's a major gap in those protections. And that is that no state or federal law prohibits app companies. That is, you know, you download, I'm not going to name any apps because I don't want to get sued, but you download, you know, X weather app or something on your phone. One of the ways that app developers make money is by installing code in those apps that collect cell phone location data from devices and transmit it directly to location data brokers. So they will get paid by the data broker. You know, I'm not sure what the contracts look like. We've never seen one, but I assume it's something like, you know, we'll pay you X amount of dollars for X amount of daily users of this app. Um, and so that industry is entirely unregulated, and that's what we're trying to address here. So the information that the data brokers get does or does not come from your telecom company itself. As I understand what you're saying, it really comes from the apps on our phones, not from the uh, the company that's providing the, the, the uh, connectivity itself, or am I misunderstanding? That's how it's supposed to work, yes. Uh, the FCC told telecoms in 2020 that selling cell phone location data violates federal law, that they, they cannot do it. However, no such law applies to these other companies, uh, to app developers. Okay, so tell us how this law would work in Massachusetts, you, the uh, Location Shield Act. Uh, you have someone who wants to come, say, from Texas to Massachusetts to access health care. Uh, Texas wants to track that person and find out where they're going and if they're somehow actually doing uh, something that Texas law might prohibit or try to prohibit. How would this act protect the person, well, traveling many over many states uh, and then arriving in Massachusetts? That's a little confusing to me. Someone who actually does turn off their cell phone at night sometimes. So explain that to <laughs> So... The way that this works basically is that um, you can, anyone with a credit card can log on to a data broker website and buy access to uh, location data. And so if I were, for example, an anti-abortion extremist who wanted to make use of Texas's SB8 bounty hunter law, the law that allows uh, civil litigation lawsuits to be filed against people who help other people obtain abortions that are unlawful in Texas. Or if I was a, an aggressive law enforcement official in Texas or Idaho who wants to make a name for myself, I could very easily log on to a location data broker website, 
put in my credit card information and buy data that would give me essentially a list of people who have left the state of Texas and traveled to a Planned Parenthood clinic in Massachusetts. That would give me a really easy starting place for investigating uh, individuals. And so that's what we're concerned about here. You know, most cases where we, where we hear about uh, law enforcement or, you know, bounty hunters targeting people who have obtained abortions that are unlawful in a place like Texas, most of those investigations arise from um, a tip from, uh, you know, an angry ex-boyfriend or husband who is upset that his, you know, wife or ex-girlfriend has obtained an abortion, you know, when he didn't want her to. Um, that is dangerous in its own right of course. And there are a number of ways that states have taken action to try to protect digital information from those kinds of investigations. But those are investigations that are based on particular suspicion deriving from, you know, a human tip. What we would like to foreclose is the possibility that anti-abortion extremists, whether they're in law enforcement in a place like Texas or just, you know, ordinary members of the public, could essentially download a list of hundreds or thousands of people to investigate by buying access to this information and very quickly identifying who has left Texas and come to Massachusetts to visit a Planned Parenthood clinic. So, so that's what we're trying to accomplish. And you know, frankly, this is not just an issue that impacts people who are seeking healthcare in Massachusetts. This is an issue that impacts all of us. You know, you're a reporter, Bill. Uh, this is an issue that impacts reporters and their sources. Um, I could very easily find out by buying uh, information from data brokers, you know, who journalists are talking to by tracking their phones. Um, you could imagine a hostile state, uh, foreign, foreign governments buying cell phone location information to track public officials in the United States, um, to track, you know, and identify who specifically uh, at, at the Massachusetts State Police is in charge of protecting the governor and not just that, but find out where they live and not just that, but find out where their children go to school. Um, it is really truly a, a public safety issue in addition to a privacy issue, that information showing the most sensitive things about all of us, you know, our daily routines, what time we leave the home, uh, our, our houses in the morning, you know, how we get to work, the routes that we take, um, when we when we typically come home at night, that you can buy that information on the internet. It's frankly appalling, um, and it needs to stop. And and that's what this campaign is is all about. Okay, I I, I do understand the 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 breadth of the problem and the invasion of privacy and the dangers that are posed. What I don't understand, and in this article. Let me go back to it. this front page article in today's Republican published yesterday on MassLive.com in which you are extensively quoted, Kate Crockford, as the uh, Technology for Liberty, uh, the director of that program for the ACLU of Massachusetts. It says that the attorney general will be the organization or the entity that would be responsible for enforcing the Location Data Shield Act. But it seems to me that it'd be very hard to find out <clears throat> how someone found someone else. How would this enforcement actually work? That's a great question. So um, 
the story got half of it right. There, there are two <laughs> mechanisms of enforcement in the bill. One is attorney general enforcement, and the other is a private right of action, and that's really important. And for people who aren't familiar with what that means, it just means that individuals, ordinary people, can sue to enforce their own rights, which is really crucial. You know, consumer privacy laws are not worth much more than the paper that they're printed on if they can't be enforced by ordinary people whose rights are violated. Um, and so, how do we know? I think that's a great question. How would we know if um, if companies are violating the law if, if if we can pass this bill? That's pretty simple, actually. We would know because somebody could log on to a data broker website and they would find information about people in Massachusetts. Um, the, the end goal of this legislation is to produce a situation where someone logs on to a location data broker's website you know, clicks through, buys data, and there's just a blank space where Massachusetts would be. There's no information available about anyone physically present in the state of Massachusetts. So unlike some bills, uh, this does not concern merely Massachusetts residents. It doesn't merely concern citizens. This bill applies to every single device that is physically present within the borders of the state of Massachusetts. So if you were coming to Massachusetts from Texas, say, you know, information would exist in location data broker websites showing that you traveled through Texas, maybe you're driving through a number of other states, but then as soon as you cross the border into Massachusetts, the information would go blank. There would be nothing available about uh, any person's movements within the state. We are speaking, <clears throat> excuse me, with Cade Crockford, who is the director of the Technology for Liberty program of the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk more about how to protect your privacy here in the Commonwealth. We'll be right back. Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. Do you love books? You'll love Broadside Bookshop. Do you know what's going on in business in Western Mass? You do if you read Business West. Find out which companies are growing, which companies are innovating. Learn about people on the move, people taking the lead. Every issue of Business West is packed with business news, including incorporations, building permits, real estate transactions, and bankruptcies. Pick up a copy or read Business West online. The vital business news is in Business West, the business journal of Western Mass. 
At the Black Sheep in Amherst, they're still baking and cooking from scratch, just like they have for almost four decades. Did you put off a party or anniversary due to COVID? Let the Black Sheep Deli help you finally celebrate this summer. You deserve it. Treat your guests to their wonderful appetizers, entrees, baked goods, and luscious desserts. No need to do all the work yourself. Let the Black Sheep Deli help you make your party a success with less stress. The Black Sheep Deli, open seven days a week and still having fun with food since 1986. Every month across the Pioneer Valley, one in three families struggles to buy diapers. That's why the Northampton Radio Group is teaming with the United Way of the Franklin and Hampshire region in support of their annual diaper drive. Stop by the United Way of Franklin and Hampshire region offices in Northampton and Greenfield or at any Leo Auto Group dealership on King Street and donate diapers throughout the month of June. By donating to the diaper drive, you can help keep area children healthy and families secure. This message brought to you by the Leo Auto Group, the United Way of the Franklin and Hampshire region, and the Northampton Radio Group. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Kate Crockford, who is the director of the Technology for Liberty program of the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts. We've been talking about the Location Shield Act, which will protect our privacy and the privacy of people of people people coming to Massachusetts from data brokers who can sell information about where you have been, who you have visited, the locations, the actual specific location you've gone to, such as an abortion clinic. So, Cade, uh, the press release from the ACLU of Massachusetts says that 92% of people in Massachusetts support the uh, this Location Shield Act. It's in the legislature. It hasn't moved yet. What can people do to support this bill and try to protect their privacy? Well, people can uh, call their representative and their state senator and tell them that you want your represent your elected officials to um, co-sponsor the legislation and that you want them to do everything in their power to make sure that this bill passes this session. Um, you know, 92% of likely voters supporting legislation is uh, highly irregular. Uh, you know, most people, <laughs> most issues don't, um, don't receive that much uh, support from across the political spectrum. But this is really a no brainer. Um, there are very few people who think it's acceptable for companies to be buying and trading and leasing and renting uh, this extremely sensitive personal information. And so we're really hopeful that lawmakers will um, take this seriously and we'll move this bill swiftly uh, and send it to Governor Healy's desk. We just have about a minute and a half left, but I would like to ask you before we have to go about the work that the ACLU of Massachusetts and you in particular, Kay Crockford, are doing with regard to face surveillance and the face surveillance campaign. So uh, tell us about that, if you would, please. Sure. So a few years ago, we launched a campaign to try to bring some democratic controls over uh, government use of facial surveillance technology. So this is technology that basically makes it possible to track where we go, what we do um, through video surveillance cameras and our faces. Um, we have made significant progress in this campaign, but we are not done yet. Um, last March, a special commission that the legislature created, created a report 
uh, issued recommendations to the legislature that were backed by the ACLU, the NAACP, the former attorney general, then AG Morahili's office, even the state police, uh, the Mass Bar Association, the Committee for Public Counsel Services, the Public Defender's Office, and many other organizations support these reforms. This is a set of reforms that constitutes a compromise, frankly. The ACLU didn't get everything that we wanted. Um, the state police probably didn't get everything they wanted, but it really does set us up for a situation where police would be able to use facial recognition technology in responsible, controlled ways with meaningful, meaningful oversight and our privacy as ordinary people in Massachusetts would be protected, that we wouldn't um, accidentally one day, you know, wake up having stumbled into a situation where we live in a kind of China style uh, dystopian surveillance state where the government is using um, biometric surveillance, face surveillance to track us everywhere we go in public. And so um, this is our top priority at the legislature is getting this done this session. So if folks are concerned about that, I would encourage you to reach out uh, specifically to your state senator and say that it's past time that we get this done and that you really want to see the face surveillance uh, bill passed this session. Kate Crockford is the director of the Technology for Liberty program at the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts. Kate, thank you so much for your time today and your insight and your leadership. We really appreciate it. This was fun. Take care. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Sarah Robertson. Holyoke Mayor Josh Garcia will hold a press conference today to announce the city has locked down state funding to build a new middle school. Funding will come from the Massachusetts School Building Authority. This was the final approval the city needed in order to build a new middle school on the site where the William R. Peck School now stands. The Massachusetts School Building Authority has agreed to reimburse $46 million of the cost. The city of Holyoke will be responsible for the remaining $40 million of the total cost, according to the superintendent of Holyoke Public Schools, Anthony Soto. The Greenfield Public Library is now closed as the city prepares to move into a new building. The library's digital resources, virtual programs, and general information remains accessible on the library's website. The new library will open on July 13th, right next door to the current library building, which has been used as the city's library since 1909. The Green River Festival returns in just two days, and organizers are working hard on last-minute preparations. On Friday at 3 p.m., gates will open for the 37th annual event, and around 6,000 people per day are expected in Greenfield at the Franklin County Fairgrounds. Fourteen communities in Massachusetts will receive grants totaling $8,740,000 in competitive EPA Brownfields funding, including several western Massachusetts towns. The money comes from the EPA's Multipurpose Assessment Revolving Loan Fund. The effort is part of the Biden administration's effort to rebuild the nation's infrastructure, support green energy development, and environmental justice. The Franklin Regional Council of Governments has been selected to receive $500,000 for a Brownfields Assessment Grant. The town of Ware will also receive $500,000, as well as multiple projects in Springfield. 
Mostly cloudy today, chance for some showers, especially middle of the day, a high of 70 to 74. Scattered showers and patchy drizzle likely tonight. Not a total rain out, but it will be damp. Overnight lows of 56 to 62. Mostly cloudy showers, chance for a thunderstorm tomorrow, a high of 76 to 80. Wet over the weekend. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El hijo del presidente Joe Biden, Hunter, se declarará culpable de delitos fiscales federales, pero evitará un enjuiciamiento completo por un cargo separado de armas en un acuerdo con el Departamento de Justicia que probablemente le ahorre tiempo tras las rejas. Hunter Biden, de 53 años, se declarará culpable de delitos fiscales menores como parte de un acuerdo hecho público el martes. El acuerdo también evitará el enjuiciamiento por un delito grave de posesión ilegal de un arma de fuego como usuario de drogas, siempre que que cumpla con las condiciones acordadas en el tribunal. El acuerdo pone fin a una larga investigación del Departamento de Justicia sobre el segundo hijo del presidente Biden, quien reconoció haber luchado contra la adicción tras la muerte en 2015 de su hermano Beau Biden. También evita un juicio que habría generado días o semanas de titulares que distrajeran a una Casa Blanca que ha buscado enérgicamente mantener su distancia del Departamento de Justicia. Si bien el acuerdo requiere que Hunter Biden admita su culpabilidad, el el acuerdo se enfoca estrictamente en violaciones de impuestos y armas en lugar de algo más amplio o vinculado al presidente demócrata. En otras informaciones, la jefa saliente del Centro para el Control y la Prevención de Enfermedades dijo el martes que sus razones para renunciar eran complicadas, impulsadas en parte por el deseo de tomarse un descanso del ritmo frenético del trabajo durante una pandemia. La doctora Rochelle Walensky sorprendió a muchos en los círculos de salud pública el mes pasado al anunciar su partida después de dos años y cinco meses, uno de los mandatos más cortos para un director del CDC en las últimas décadas. El último día de Walensky en el CDC es el 30 de junio. Ella no tiene un nuevo trabajo u otro rol en espera, dijo, y señaló que quería pasar un tiempo con su familia viviendo a un ritmo más lento. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Hollywood Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. And this is our Thursday segment, Have Faith, and we are joined by the pastor of the United Church of Ware, Carol Bull, who is with us once a month. We have a rotating schedule of religious leaders in our communities, and we're so pleased that Carol is back with us today. Carol, I actually want to take you back to a previous life, if I might, uh, not literally, sorry, I mean, for those, <laughs> those who take, take these things literally. Um, <laughs> But before you were the pastor at the United Church of Ware, you were the uh, chaplain at mm -hmm. Cooley Dickinson Hospital. Yes. And you were on the show a number of times uh, mm -hmm. in that capacity. And in preparation and in anticipation, actually, of a conversation we're going to have uh, next week on the show, Have Faith, we're going to be talking to someone uh, who is a proponent of atheism. Mm -hmm. um, and what I would like to know is when you were at the hospital and you were talking to people who did not have a religious uh, foundation uh, in their belief system, uh, 
What was that like for you? And how did you uh, accommodate that? And, uh, and I would be interested to know whether you ever saw kind of last-minute conversions of some sort. And so tell us about, uh, I guess, in particular, uh, end-of-life conversations with people who don't have faith. Thank you. What a wonderful way to lead in, Bill. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, I, was, I had the privilege of working at Cooley for 13 years and eventually became the coordinator of pastoral care there with a couple of staff working with me. Um, and I, I mean, I would say, I'll tell you one example. So one example was I walked into somebody's room and I said, you know, my name is Carol and I'm the chaplain. And the person said, well, I'm Jewish. And I said, well, it doesn't matter to me what your faith tradition is or none, uh, but I'm here to support you in whatever you're going through. So that's one example of someone who has a eth- either ethnic and or religious background um, or not. You know, some people are, say they're Jewish and they, they see themselves as Jewish, but they don't. They're not interested in the religious part of it and other people who are. Um, And then I also went in to meet a young man, and he said, and I said, I'm Carol, and I'm the chaplain. He said, you don't want to talk to me. I'm an atheist. And I said, I love talking to atheists. And we began a conversation of really love and support for who that person is. And, And, you know, some of the labels that we have on us, religious or spiritual-wise, are ones that either our family put on us or we have fought hard to get, um, and some of them are even in between there. And um, sometimes we, as a chaplain, you have to really um, not just grab onto the label that you think the person, the, that the person says they are, but you have to really say, well, what does that mean? Uh, so there's many people who identify as a particular religion never go to their faith community, wouldn't dream of talking to the priest or the pastor, et cetera. So, um, you know, just because you have a particular label on you doesn't mean um, anything to a chaplain. You have to kind of dig a little bit underneath that. Um, And the man who said he was an atheist, I eventually I talked to him about what gives you hope in this hard time that you're going through, and he said, nature. And I thought back, and I thought, just like the Roman Catholic down the hall just told me, that nature was something that gives her great hope. So, Well, let me ask about that, because that's something that's very present, uh, an idea that is something that can be incorporated here in this moment or in a moment. Mm-hmm. But for a lot of faith, a lot of faiths, mm-hmm. um, what happens next, something in the nature of an afterlife or eternal life, mm-hmm. uh, is really important. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how you address that either with a believer or a non-believer mm-hmm. uh, in terms of, well, you're in the hospital, mm-hmm. you're ill, you may be looking at uh, an imminent or close to imminent end of life. Mm-hmm. Tell us about those experiences. Yeah, so I, I think that the chaplain's role is to listen really well and take the lead from the person. And so, um, and sometimes I would have to introduce this, this question of afterlife with people uh, because people were skirting around it and actively avoiding it in maybe an unhealthy way. So, um, you know, 
everybody, you know, what I told them is, in terms of my own humanness, you know, I haven't gone to the other side myself. You know, there are people who've had near-death experiences, and we can take what we like and from those experiences if we're interested. But for many people, the uh, if they don't believe in an afterlife uh, of reunification and joy with the people you knew when you were here on the planet, um, the issue really has to do with legacy. So I would ask, you know, what have... What do you believe your legacy is to your children or to your wife or to your friendship group? You know, what would they say that they received from you while you were here? And uh, you get deep, beautiful information out of that. You know, when people tell you, well, I'm a person of courage and I hope that others have gotten courage from me. Um, you know, I've been fighting this cancer for many years and um, I wanted to stay alive so I could see my grandchildren, and I've been able to do that. And, and that, that courage and stamina of my own is what I hope they receive from me to go on. I, I suspect that those who believe in an afterlife uh, have a certain amount of, uh, uh, what's the word I want, I, I guess, mm -hmm. comfort. Um, in facing the end of this life uh, that people who don't have that belief can't have. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering what your experience with that was as a chaplain. Yeah, I, th I would say, uh, so some people may have that belief, but in the moment they're terrified and they can't access that belief. So I would say, given that you are Roman Catholic, are you aware that most priests believe this is what happens? And they would go, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm going to see my grandmother, you know. So so um, sometimes it was a matter of reminding people what their faith traditions talk about. And and yet they may, they may not themselves actually believe that to the extent that a priest might. So tell us what your faith teaches and what you believe in terms of an afterlife. What is it? Yeah. Yeah, so I'm... And this is United Church of Christ. Yeah, so I'm an interfaith Christian pastor, so I practice a type of Kundalini Maha Yoga from India, uh, meditation and service practice, and I also am a United Church of Christ pastor, and I'm Christian. So I have these two faith traditions that I love that are very strong and that have kind of different views of these, these topics that you're raising. Um, as a Christian, uh, and in my church, we talk about this. We believe that Jesus is alive in us. Uh, his spirit is alive in us. And we depend on that for everything from what we do on a daily basis to, um, to making long-term plans for our death practices and things like that. So, um, you know, that's, uh, we believe that, you know, Jesus was killed uh, by the powers that be at that time because he was a threat to the established status quo, but that he was reborn in another form in, in the spirit. And we believe that strongly. And, you know, if you talk to different pastors, you'll hear what they believe, and it might be a slightly different. But that, in the Christian view, that's what we believe, that Jesus uh, is, also, is, is always in us and is an example of nonviolent love and also political struggle, because he was carrying on a political struggle also. 
Okay. You've just taken us on a slight detour. (laughs) 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 Not trying to... uh, Well, yes, actually, I am trying to uh, find out. What do you really believe happens next? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... what does your church teach happens next? Yeah, that we're reunited with God and that Jesus receives us with love and care. In some sort of... uh, physical form a spiritual form what what is what is what is it what is that what does that mean yeah some people believe it's a physical form uh you've seen probably pictures of jesus coming down out of the sky and lifting people up there's all kinds of depictions of this for me it's a spiritual experience where we are we're always connected with god and jesus and when we die we are welcomed by them back into the into the cosmos from which we came in some, okay, I, I, I know I'm asking an impossible question, but <laughs> but, but I, I'm interested in what the what the faith is because this mm-hmm. is obviously not provable. But yeah. it is a faith that something happens. And can you right. give me a more of a description of what happens? Yeah, a person I mean, dies. Then what? Yeah. So um, I've been in the rooms of many people uh, when they've died, or I call it transitioned, actually transitioned from this body to another form that we know not what, um, and reabsorbed by the God of our understanding is another way to talk about it. Um, and but but you know, like in the Roman Catholic tradition, it's really like you have you go to heaven and you have a party with the people who you know here who you've known on the planet, and you celebrate, and, and it's an actual and place. In, and, and place, and then there's a form, yeah, and you have a form? Uh, yes, in, in certain traditions that is what's believed. But again, each individual person may or may not subscribe to those beliefs. You know, we have this pretense in, in organized religion that everyone in the building believes the same thing. It's just not the case. Each person has their own interpretation of what what these tenets of the religion are. And some people buy into all of it, some people buy into none of it, but they love the fellowship, they love the group of people here, things like that. Carol, so, well, I'd be interested to know in your experience, did people who have faith in this kind of an afterlife, and this is a pretty concrete afterlife mm-hmm. that you're describing that some people mm-hmm. have faith in, mm-hmm. did they have less fear uh, of this transition than people who didn't have that faith, or did it not sustain them differently? I would say both legacy and faith in what we've been discussing, both of those are comforting to people, to know that they weren't here for no reason, that something of what they brought in their life is carried on by others. And so for those who are atheist or agnostic, that was sufficient to calm them down and to make them feel less scared. This, and for people who, do ha- who at the moment don't, ha- don't remember their beliefs, when you remind them of what their faith tradition has taught them, it's very comforting to them. So both, bo- both groups are comforted by their own belief about what is going to happen in this transition. And again, I use the word transition all the time with everybody. Does it make a difference <clears throat> in your in your faith, in the mm-hmm. United Church of Christ, mm-hmm. does it make a difference in terms of what will happen to a person or their soul, if that's the right word, or in this transition, whether they've been a believer or not? 
they, well, to them it matters. I mean, I, I wanted to tell you about one other situation I had in the intensive care unit at Cooley. A man was, he knew he was dying, and he asked to be baptized. And so I baptized him. And um, that gave him great comfort and helped him, I believe, face whatever is next. It was a quick baptism, um, and there weren't other people there. It was just the two of us. But he wanted that assurance that baptism gives the members of, of Christian faith, that, they, that being baptized in Jesus' name is a powerful um, help to our bodies, minds, and souls. I understand for that person, my question actually is slightly different, which is that does it, ma I understand it matters to the person, mm -hmm. and I understand how that can matter, mm -hmm. but I'm wondering whether as a matter of faith it matters. Is a person less likely to go to the kingdom of heaven if they've been a believer, less likely if they've not been a believer? Well, there's, there, you know, there's lots of weighing in on this all over the place by a lot of different spectrum of Christians, right? So, um, I mean... So, so I guess what I keep, I just have to go back to the people I've talked to, Bill, and the people I've talked to, it matters to them that this, this particular man wanted baptism and it mattered to him. Do I believe it matters in some other form? Yes, I do, because that's my belief, that baptism is a way of um, accepting a particular uh, structure and deities into one's life. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back more with Reverend Carol Bull right after this. You got to fill out a form first, and then you wait in the Okay, new kid in school got to follow the rule. You got to learn the routine. Whoa, there's a girl over there with the sunshiny hair like a home. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. What's new at the Waitley Inn? Everything. The Waitley Inn has undergone a stunning transformation with a fresh new look inside and a beautiful wraparound porch with great views and expanded parking area. The only thing that hasn't changed is the menu, offering classic New England fare the Waitley Inn has become famous for. The Waitley Inn is open Wednesday through Saturday starting at 4 p.m. and Sunday from 1 to 7. Pickup is also available with easy online ordering. Visit WaitleyInn.com. Eat greatly at the Waitley. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Push, push, come on, one more. Let's go, go, go. Is this your idea of personal training? If so, you've got it all wrong. Or perhaps we've got it all right at Fitness Together, where we meet you where you are to get you where you want to be. Fitness Together trainers help you reach your goal at any fitness level, even despite ailments and physical limitations. So don't let a misconception keep you from having the energy to do what you love. Learn how you can get it together at Fitness Together Amherst or Northampton. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't, 
go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at 80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. We continue our conversation with Carol Bull, who is the pastor at the United Church of Ware. This was not the conversation I thought we were going to be having this morning, but we started, and I just find it so interesting. I'd like to keep going. We've been talking about end of life and what happens at the end of life, and obviously it's a matter of faith because there's no way to prove it, but I'm wondering if you could tell us is in, in this concrete a way as you, you, you can describe it, what you think happens, what your faith tells you happens as in this, what you call a transition. Mm-hmm. What do you believe? Yeah, and I want to say I'm uniquely qualified to discuss this because I am an interfaith person. I do two different practices. So I see uh, people in India and the United States who um, this path of kundalini yoga is sprung from the Hindu tradition, but is not Hinduism. Um, I see them do their practices with the same sensitivity, love, care, and faith as I see Christians do their practices here in the United States. Um, Jesus never said... Uh, So people misinterpret what Jesus said in the Bible. You can only come through the Father, to the Father, through me. And many people on the right, uh, non-progressive Christians, believe that means that this is an exclusive, uh, that that you must be exclusively Christian in order to uh, be spiritual or be connected with God. You know, the truth is all paths eventually lead to the word God or infinite mysterious spirit, whatever you want to call it. All of the paths lead there, and they take different ways of doing it. So we're not, uh, I'm not a pastor to, uh, to make anybody come into my church and sign on the dotted line that they believe this, that, or the other thing. Their beliefs are uh, are all of who they are based on their experiences that they've had in their lifetimes. And my job is to love them and accept them and to give them the messages uh, about spirituality and religion that I've been given to, I've been um, ordained to give out, right? Um, And so I preached recently on this, uh, you know, Jesus didn't say that if you're in China and you grew up Buddhist that you must come to God through Jesus. He didn't say that. He said to the people at the time that they needed to know about the uniqueness of the God that he was offering them connection with. So there's a uniqueness of God in that time when he said those things. And then there's exclusivity, which is there's only one way to get to God. And that is not, I believe, a correct interpretation of the scripture. One way that people say they get to God or connect with God is through prayer. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering for you and your church, to the extent you can talk for a congregation or speak for a congregation, what do you mean by prayer? 
Yeah, the simple form of uh, prayer, you know, there's kind of two definitions. Prayer is speaking to God, and meditation is listening. And of course, there's, you know, ways we can do all those things. Um, but prayer is really opening your heart and and being honest with God. Um, so some people do these rote prayers that they've been taught, and they don't really mean much to them. And other people do rote prayers, and they mean a lot to them. So I think the main thing is to bring your honesty and your integrity to your belief in the God of your understanding um, when you pray, whenever you pray. Um, so, you know, I believe in prayer throughout the day. Uh, I ask for guidance whenever I can uh, to do the right thing, to be kind, uh, to lessen my judgmental nature, all those things I ask for help for. Um, and a lot of the time I receive it, uh, sometimes right away, sometimes it takes years. Um, so. All right. So all we've had to do today is try to discover the essence of the cosmos, which I appreciate you're, <laughs> you're, you're doing with us, Carol Bull. I, I, I suppose that I don't have a better question other than say, what's your final word on this for the moment? Now, we, I don't think we've quite resolved the question, no. but final word from you? Yeah, well, I mean, I think in our church we believe in science. You know, people are pronounced dead by scientific means, as we know. So we have to all agree that, yes, the body dies and something else may be happening. And, and that's what, uh, what my role is to talk with people about, what they believe is happening at that time. We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with Carol Bull. This is Have Faith. Carol is the pastor at the United Church of Ware. Thank you so very much, Carol. Really appreciate your Thank time. Thank you. Dig my grave with a silver spade. My name is Silas Kopf. I have long been a friend of Riverside Industries in East Hampton. For more than 50 years, they have empowered and supported adults with developmental disabilities. People are treated with dignity and respect, and the Riverside team helps them to reach their goals and even find employment in our area. You may not realize it, but you encounter people every day in our community that receive training and support from Riverside Industries. To learn more about the fine work that Riverside Industries does, go to rsi.org. How long and how hard would you work to own your own home? At Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity, future homeowners contribute dozens of hours to build a home for their family, but they need your help. Thousands of community supporters have participated in this work since 1989. They create a partnership with a future homeowner and Habitat to build a home, strengthen our neighborhoods, and create a legacy for our community. Grab a hammer, lend a hand, build a better world. Volunteer and support Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity. pvhabitat.org. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, WHMP.com, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's 10 o'clock. Hour, presented by Indeed.com. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. Some experts say the massive rescue effort to save five people on the submersible that disappeared on a trip to see the Titanic wreckage is now a mission impossible. Former U.S. Naval Commander David Marquet says 96 hours of oxygen most likely ran out this morning. I think the most likely scenario, unfortunately, is they will not be found in time. More from correspondent Cammie McCormick. 
An international coalition of rescuers are searching the area. A French research vessel is the latest to arrive. Even if the submersible is located, it's unclear how it can be retrieved, given the depth of the water and the extreme conditions. Art Trambanis, professor that teaches marine science and policy at the University of Delaware. What is most disturbing about this is how suddenly and completely the communication was, was lost. Another Republican has joined the race for the party's presidential 2023 nomination. Former Texas Congressman Will Hurd, fierce critic of Donald Trump, announced his intentions on CBS Mornings, where he weighed in on the classified documents case. No, I would not pardon him. And, and people that are talking about pardoning him right now, when the case hasn't even started, is insane to me. At least four people have been killed in a line of severe storms that churned up multiple tornadoes, hurricane-force winds, and softball-sized hail in Texas. Part of the small northwest town of Matador was flattened. Survivors will also have to deal with extreme temperatures. CBS's Jared Hill. Parts of Texas are bracing for a stretch of extreme heat. Signs of heat exhaustion include profuse sweating, dizziness, weakness, pale or clammy skin, a fast weak pulse, and nausea or vomiting. With days of triple-digit temperatures in the forecast. More than 220,000 customers in Texas have no power. We could hear from the Supreme Court. This morning on several significant cases, one of them could be a decision on President Biden's student loan forgiveness program that would cancel up to $20,000 in debt. This year's Kennedy Center nominees include some very familiar names. There's Dionne Warwick and Billy Crystal. I have decided that for the rest of the day, we are going to talk like this. Also, Barry Gibb of the Bee Gees, Queen Latifah, and singer Renee Fleming. The president of the Kennedy Center calls the group an extraordinary mix of individuals who have redefined their art forms. Steve Kathan, CBS News. The Dow is down 12 points. This is CBS News. Hiring's a lot easier with Indeed. Their powerful platform makes it easy to attract, interview, and hire candidates all in the same place. Visit Indeed.com credit. Have you Googled yourself lately? Are there negative posts from an ex-employee or from a former client? Maybe an outdated news article or sensitive personal information about your family? Search engines don't always get it right. For right or wrong, it's your reputation on the line. That's where Reputation Defender by Norton comes in. One of the most trusted names in online reputation repair. Reputation Defender has been fixing people's search results for over 15 years. Their cutting-edge approaches help you to wipe away unwanted information in your search results. They also promote the good stuff so that it rises to the top, helping you put your best foot forward. Your good name is too valuable to leave to the whims of a Google algorithm. Take control with Reputation Defender. You can start by getting your free reputation report card at reputationdefender.com or call 800-401-6681 to speak to an expert. That's 800-401-6681. There will be no Major League Baseball at the field of... For WHMP News, I'm Sarah Robertson. Holyoke Mayor Josh Garcia will hold a press conference today to announce the city has locked down state funding to build a new middle school. Funding will come from the Massachusetts School Building Authority. This was the final approval the city needed in order to build a new middle school on the site where the William R. Peck School now stands. The Massachusetts School Building Authority has agreed to reimburse $46 million of the cost. The city of Holyoke will be responsible for the remaining $40 million. 
of the total cost, according to the superintendent of Holyoke Public Schools, Anthony Soto. The Greenfield Public Library is now closed as the city prepares to move into a new building. The library's digital resources, virtual programs, and general information remains accessible on the library's website. The new library will open on July 13th, right next door to the current library building, which has been used as the city's library since 1909. The Green River Festival returns in just two days, and organizers are working hard on last-minute preparations. On Friday at 3 p.m., gates will open for the 37th annual event, and around 6,000 people per day are expected in Greenfield at the Franklin County Fairgrounds. Fourteen communities in Massachusetts will receive grants totaling $8,740,000 in competitive EPA Brownfields funding, including several western Massachusetts towns. The money comes from the EPA's Multipurpose Assessment Revolving Loan Fund. The effort is part of the Biden administration's effort to rebuild the nation's infrastructure, support green energy development, and environmental justice. The Franklin Regional Council of Governments has been selected to receive $500,000 for a Brownfields Assessment Grant. The town of Ware will also receive $500,000, as well as multiple projects in Springfield. Mostly cloudy today, chance for some showers, especially middle of the day, a high of 70 to 74. Scattered showers and patchy drizzle likely tonight. Not a total rain out, but it will be damp. Overnight lows of 56 to 62. Mostly cloudy showers, chance for a thunderstorm tomorrow, a high of 76 to 80. Wet over the weekend. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. This is Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. Buzz Eisenberg is off today. And this is the segment that we so enjoy and look forward to, Science and Sensibility, with Brian Adams. Brian is a professor emeritus at Greenfield Community College, where he taught for many, many years in the Environmental Science Department. This this segment, Science and Sensibility, allows us to hear from the guests who Brian regularly brings in to help us learn about and understand what is happening in our environment here in Western Massachusetts, in the Valley in particular, and the issues that really affect us all based on environment, environmental issues throughout the country. So, Brian, thank you so very much. We really appreciate you being with us every week, and I'd really love to turn the microphone over to you for the pleasure of the introduction of your very special guest today. Brian. Thanks, Buzz. And uh, Bill. <laughs> Bill Buzz is on vacation. I, I, I've been, I've been Bill, Buzz, they all look. They all Brian, look I, I, I've been called worse. Oh, goodness. Um, so happy summer solstice to all of our listeners. Yesterday was the longest day of the year. Today is the first day, of, full day of summer. I think as most people know, we in the Northern Hemisphere, when, we're, when the Earth tilts most towards the sun, that gives us the longest day of the year. Sun rose today at 5.14 in the morning, setting at 8.30. So that's 15 hour, fifteen and a quarter hours of sun, which is really, really wonderful. Here in this particular latitude. In Massachusetts. Okay. Where, where else do we care about? The, <laughs> you know, We're not parochial. Nothing but <laughs> else matters other than, other than us here. And if folks can stay up long enough after that sun setting at 9.00, 05 is when dusk is. You can stay up long enough and get out into a meadow or a forest edge or maybe even your backyard. You see something remarkable out there, and that is a light show put on by Mother Nature that rivals 
no other light shows. And I want to start with a little poem. This is from Evelyn Stein. I stole it from the internet. Flash and flicker and fly away, trailing light as you flutter far. Are you a lamp for the fairies, say, or a flake of fire from a falling star? That's called the firefly. And the end of June with the fireflies out and the solstice is really remarkable. And the guest in the studio today is going to tell us all about fireflies and native bees and dragonflies. If we have time, Fred Morrison was a longtime teacher in the Northampton Public Schools, 35 years, and is a wonderful naturalist. Fred, thanks so much for being in the studio today. Well, thanks for having me, Brian. So let's start with fireflies. Why do they flicker and fly and flash and do their thing? <laughs> well, it's all about sex, of course. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> the, <laughs> uh, we, uh, this is a G-rated show. I just want to yes, make that clear. Yes, I know. Yeah, it's okay. a family show. I know. Okay. Um, well, first of all, these, uh, these insects have the capacity to flash, um, a, a chemical reaction that happens in their body. But the, the, uh, the males um, do their flashing to... Um, they're looking for females, and uh, if the female accepts the flash of the male, well, she is willing to mate. So when you see them flying uh, in fields, and, and damp fields are really the uh, best place to look for them this time of year, um, all that flashing business is all, all has to do with attracting mates. So it's just the males that are flashing? No, no, the females flash too. Uh, and depending on the species, you can get uh, flashes that happen, uh, double flashes, or you can have a flash uh, every five seconds or a flash every two seconds, depending on the species. But they recognize one another, in terms of species, that is. And uh, if the flashing is correct, the female may accept the mate. And how many species of fireflies are there? Are they all the same? I'm not the sure same? here. In, uh, there, are, there are hundreds and hundreds all over the world. There aren't any out in the western part of the United States. They're, they're, they're just here in the east. But um, I don't know how many there are in New England, Probably a couple of dozen species, and they and different species flash with different intervals and yeah. different intensity. That's right. That's so if right. you're a firefly, you got to really check it out and make sure that you're going to the right place uh, and mating with the right species. Yeah, that's right. And the, and and there's actually a potential problem. There's actually a a type of uh, of uh, lightning bug, another term for them, where the the female can actually a one species of female can make a flash that draws in the male, but it turns out she's a different species and she eats him. Whoa! So she <laughs> so she mimics his flash. She, she mimics to she mimics she mimics the flash of the female that he's trying to attract, but it's the wrong female. And then she chomps down on him. Exactly. And then flashes the right flash to bring in a suitable partner. Uh, yes. Oh, right. So beware the flash if you are a <laughs> lightning bug. So it's they're not going to flash for that much longer, right? No, uh, it happens uh, the last couple of weeks in June and usually the first couple of weeks in July, and then it's then it's pretty much over. But then they lay their eggs, and uh, the eggs uh, become small um, larvae. And they also, some of them at least, some of the species, they also have the ability to, to glow. In fact, they're called glowworms, and they... They live down in the vegetation, along in the in the soil, and uh, and you can find them if you if you poke around and look for them at night. So most of the year they're actually in the soil, yeah. not flying around. They yeah. wait until this mating frenzy of flashing and That's mating, true. and hopefully not getting eaten by a. <laughs> by a 
Well, the um, the larvae are uh, and the and the adults as well are not edible. Uh, that is, if you if you're a bird, let's say, and you try to chomp down on either the larvae or the or the adults, you're in trouble. They are, they have very foul tasting chemicals, and in fact, the flashing of the grubs especially are, is probably a, a way to deter uh, predators. Wow! So listeners, get out there once the sun sets or sometimes even before the sun sets and find that wet meadow um, or your own backyard and watch those fireflies do their things. They're not going to do it for much longer, uh, but it is a remarkable, remarkable natural history event. Bill, you got a comment? I, I have a question. Sure. Uh, I, I just want to be clear. How long do they live for? Well, um, the adults only live for about a, a month or so, but then the larvae live uh, the rest of the summer. They uh, pupate eventually in the soil, and then the next year, around they the same do that, time, they, they come they, out as adults. Do they, what's that word, pupate? Yes. Do they do it in private? <laughs> oh, for God's sakes, Bill. Get your, <laughs> very private. Yeah, very get private. your mind out of the gutter and back get into the meadow. Get my mind out of the soil, right? Out of the soil and <laughs> into right. the meadow. Um, Fred, uh, let's uh, um, change topics here. Uh, one of the most misquoted Shakespeare lines ever was to be or not to be. As a Shakespearean scholar that I am, what Shakespeare actually said was two bees or not two bees. I mean, most of us think, oh, there are two bees out there, right? There are bumblebees and there are honeybees. But Fred now is going to give us the definitive answer that actually what Shakespeare was saying is it's not two bees. There are more than two bees. So uh, we have a lot of species of native bees out here in, uh, in Western Mass. Is that right? And tell us about some of them. Well, actually, a friend of mine a while back said, I think there are three bees. There are honeybees, bumblebees, and all the other bees. <laughs> well, it turns out that in Massachusetts anyway, there are almost 400 species of bees. 400? 400, yeah. And they range from anywhere from the size of, actually the smaller than the size of a grain of rice to great big whoppers like carpenter bees and some of the bigger bumblebees that can be inch and a half uh, long, for example. Um, we're talking with Fred Morrison. Fred is a wonderful natural historian. He taught in Northampton for 35 years. He knows all about bees. And one of my <laughs> um, times that I, I most remember, I had community garden plots there on Village Hill, and, and uh, there you come tromping through with your net uh, yeah. looking for these native <laughs> bees. How you tell uh, one bee apart from another? I mean, they all, not to stereotype, but they all sort of look the same, <laughs> right? Um, and they all have those three body parts, right? Head, thorax, abdomen, abdomen, everybody. Head, thorax, abdomen. But, um, sure. <laughs> but how, how do you tell one bee apart from the other? Oh, it's a little bit like asking a mammologist, how do you tell the difference between a moose and a chipmunk? Um, it turns out if you work with them a little while, they're pretty easy to tell apart, with the exception of some of the smaller ones, which are so tiny that you need a microscope to take a look at the features. But um, if you work on them for a little while, it, it all sort of settles out. You can see there are, there are six big families of bees, and you know you look for defining characteristics, and you can you can start to figure out what you've got. W one of the things that that happens when you're studying um, animals like like uh, like bees, is when you first start, you end up catching a bunch of the same sorts of things, honeybees, for example. But after a while, you get the sense that, okay, if you, if you know 
if, you, if you're aiming for certain kinds of bees, you know what plants they're going to be on or what time of year they're going to be flying or there are all these sort of tricks and eventually you get better and better and better at it. Um, I think a lot of people don't know that honeybees, which we think of as, uh, as being here forever, are actually not native yeah. to North America, right? They came over in the 1620s. Sure. I, yeah. I, I they're, they're European bees. They're have, non-native bees. Yeah. Have they usurped the native bees? Is, is, well, no, what's I don't know if usurped is exactly the right word, but they certainly uh, are really good at taking advantage of the, of the nectar and uh, pollen resources out there. So, so they're, they're big competition for native bees for sure. And, um, you know, often if I'm giving a talk or if I um, or have an exhibit of some of the bees I've collected, someone for sure will come up to me and will say, you know, I'm, I've always been thinking about uh, raising honeybees to, you know, help save the bees. But that's a little bit like saying, I'd like to raise chickens to save the birds. <laughs> uh, it's a domesticated animal, uh, and uh, you're not going to save bees by raising honeybees. It's, it's great fun to have honeybees. It's very, um, a very entertaining, interesting sort of um, hobby. But um, saving the bees is not, is not what, what happens when you raise honeybees. Because when we think about pollination, we think of, or I, I think about honeybees as being the, the major pollinators out there. So much of our agricultural crops depend on, uh, on bees and with orchards and apples and, and all mm -hmm. that stuff. Native bees are pollinators as well. Oh, do sure. They, do they help us as people out agriculturally? Sure, sure. Native bees are fantastic pollinators. Bees in general are, are the best pollinators. They have... Um, the, they, they're covered with hairs, and the hairs are branched hairs. If you look at them under a scope, all, all, all uh, bees are, have these branched hairs that are great for collecting pollen, and, uh, and honeybees are the same, of course. But, um, so they're, they're probably the best insects of all in terms of pollination. We're talking with Fred Morrison. Fred is a wonderful natural historian. He uh, lectures and travels around talking about bees and dragonflies and freshwater mussels, right? You know a lot about that. Um, we're going to stick with this and come back and look at some of the threats to bees and some of the stuff that people can do to help protect native uh, pollinators when we come back. So stick with us. Deep inside your mind All More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. Which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money. Which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. 
Introducing You Choose Rewards, the free debit card rewards program that rewards you every time you use your GSB Debit MasterCard. Just use your Greenfield Savings Bank Debit MasterCard to make purchases and you'll earn rewards points every time. You'll even earn You Choose Rewards with your mobile wallet, including Apple Pay, Google Pay, Samsung Pay, or PayPal, when you link your GSB Debit MasterCard. You Choose Rewards can be redeemed for dining, shopping, traveling, cashback, donations, and more. Just go to our website and sign up for You Choose Rewards for your GSB Debit MasterCard. It's free. Not a GSB customer yet? Just stop in any of our offices or open a new GSB checking account online and you'll find out how rewarding banking locally with Greenfield Savings can be. Get a 1,000 You Choose Points bonus good for a $10 reward when you sign up during June at Greenfield Savings Bank. Member FDIC, member DIF, greenfieldsavings.com. See bank for details. What's for dinner tonight? What's on your plate is a conversation with the land, with the farmers. Local farm fresh food is all around. Get it direct from farms and farm stands, at farmer's markets, at grocery stores, in local restaurants. Just look for CESA's bright yellow Local Hero label, letting you know that this is food from local farms, grown with care by friends and neighbors. Local Hero food, as fresh as it gets. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. And this is our Science and Sensibility segment. We continue with Adam, with Brian Adams and his very special guest, Fred Morrison. Uh, you called me Adam and I called you Buzz. So there <laughs> you go, Bill. <laughs> I've been, yeah, well. It's We've both co- been called worse, right? Or better. <laughs> it's, it's, it's my wife, my wife calls me uh, uh, Frank when she gets mad at me. <laughs> uh, there you go. Uh, my brother's in the studio uh, with us today from Southern Colorado and all the things that I call him behind his back, <laughs> we won't even go there. So during the break, we we're talking about threats to bees. Uh, and again, bee pollination is responsible for a huge amount of the food that we eat. Uh, and there's been a lot of alarm in, the, in, in years and a lot of misinformation about honeybee colony collapse and all. Um, Fred, are bees in trouble? Um, well, um Back around 2006, uh, there seemed to be a, a real problem with, uh, with, with honeybees, with honeybee colonies, that is, uh, especially with people who were hauling enormous numbers of hives around uh, places like California to pollinate uh, almond trees. And uh, it appeared as though there was something going on with honeybees. Uh, that, that has since gone by the board. It, people are not so concerned about that. It turns out honeybees being a domesticated animal, um, and so they end up um, having all kinds of troubles. They have troubles with mites, trouble with the viruses and bacteria and the fungi and so forth. So you end up having um, people losing their hives, sometimes 10% of their hives, sometimes as high as 40% of their hives, due to all kinds of troubles. And so at least that, that kicked off uh, people's interest in what's going on with honeybees, and that eventually led to, well, is there anything going on with native bees? And so um, there have been a lot of investigations. And it turns out that um, bees and, in fact, insects in general seem to be uh, suffering some declines. And uh, if anyone would like to know um, more about that, there's a wonderful, wonderful article that was written by 
a friend of mine who is the head of the entomology department at the University of Connecticut. Um, just go on the internet and type in um, Death by a Thousand Cuts by David Wagner, uh, entomologist David Wagner, and uh, he, he covers the sort of the, the, this um, phenomenon of declining insects uh, worldwide. And what, what can people do about that? I know there's a lot of uh, mm -hmm. interest and enthusiasm about native pollinators and planting pollinator-friendly gardens. Can you talk about that? Does that make sure. a difference? Yeah, yeah those, those, are, uh, those are great things to do at the local level. Some of the stressors on bees and insects in general, though, are, are very uh, broad. Climate change, for example, uh, habitat change, uh, lots more lights than we ever had before. And then, of course, uh, pesticides. Um, so some of those things you can't control as easily. Well, of course, you can st stop or, or be very cautious about using pesticides. Keep your lights to a minimum if you can. Um, but some of these other things, these climate change problems, for example, and habit general habitat change are, are really big issues. Um, Bill, you had a comment? I would like to know whether the other 39 species of bees, uh, in addition to the... the 39? Honey, didn't you say there were 40? Oh, my no, God. No, 400. 400. Oh, yeah, I've been called... Almost um, 400 in Massachusetts. 400? In yeah. Massachusetts. 400 yeah. species? Yeah. Are the other three... A couple of thousand in the, in the United States. Wow. Well, let's stick with Massachusetts. Are the other 399... In trouble, or or the, it's because the honeybees are domesticated that they have different problems. Um, well, um, four hundred we, yeah. three thousand. <laughs> wow. We we Who uh, knew? A, a group of us started uh, to collect bees um, uh, around two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, um, and uh, we were doing it mainly to learn things about bees ourselves. But it got. It got out of hand, and eventually we decided, uh, let's write up a checklist of the bees of Massachusetts. And, and in fact, we got it published a couple of years ago. Um, and it turns out that uh, of, the, of all the bees that we caught, around 50 or so were brand new to the state. No one had ever caught them before. Some of them were bees that came up from the south that were not here before because, you know, the climate is changing. Um, and we, and it appears as though there's been a decline in some of the bees uh, that had been caught here in the past. Some of the bumblebees, for instance, have disappeared. But um, we've we caught a lot of bees, and uh, and there's still more to be caught. We'll probably come up with another ten or twenty species that we haven't caught yet, um, because we know that they're in they're in Vermont or New York or Connecticut. I have a stupid question. How do you catch a bee? <laughs> we used uh, generally two techniques. One of them is just a small hand net. Um, we focus on various kinds of plants that they, especially the rare ones, use and uh, catch them that way. And we also set out um, these small plastic cups that are painted uh, yellow, blue, or white. And we put a little bit of soapy water in them. And uh, 
this doesn't see, doesn't seem very nice, but we but the bees <laughs> the bees flying along will see these small cups of soapy water and and go in to get what they think is nectar and pollen. Oh, and uh, and they end up drowning. Oh, and we <laughs> we're gonna get like, some angry calls from uh, this one. Well, the the ban you know, the cups, one, ban one the, the cups. One of the things about about insects in general is they produce a lot of babies, and so these are these are small surveys we're doing. And uh, this is a way for us to survey enormous numbers of, and a, a, a small select sampling of enormous amounts, numbers of insects. So we don't make much of a dent in, uh, in the population. One of the great wonders in life is to see Fred galloping through a meadow with the... No, 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 with, no, no. I don't with, gallop. I never, ever um, gallop. I never chase. Trot, I usually walk very uh, slowly, canter, deliberately. Uh, with, uh, with your... Butterfly <laughs> slash slash bee net. Um, we don't have a whole lot of time left. Fred, why bees? How, how did you get into this? Let's see. How did that start? Well, it started much, much earlier. Of course, when I was a kid, I loved to collect insects and did all that kind of stuff that a nerdy science natural history kid would do. And uh, it, it started, I think, the, these sorts of surveys that I've been doing started early on when... Um, I discovered a, a very interesting-looking beetle, believe it or not, on Mass Audubon property called an elderberry borer beetle. Looks beetle. It looks like something out of the tropics, and I I, I let the people at Natural Heritage Endangered Species um, a state in the state know that I'd caught one, and they said, "Oh, would you like to do a survey for us in the summer to see if you can find any more?" And I took on that task. And then my lovely wife decided when we moved out to West Hampton that she would try to catch some dragonflies and damselflies in the backyard because we didn't know the names of any of them. This is back in 1995 or so. She came in and it turned out one of the ones she caught right in our backyard was an endangered species, a state endangered species of dragonfly. So we let the Natural Heritage Endangered Species Program know that we had caught one, and they said, well, actually, we have, we have a, a number of, um, of uh, properties that are run by the um, Army Corps of Engineers, and we need to have dragonfly surveys done there. Would you like to do those? And we said, we don't know anything about dragonflies and damselflies. And they said, you'll learn. Uh. And anyway, that led to lots and lots of surveys, including uh, surveys of dragonflies and damselflies in Costa Rica and Ecuador and, and other places. It all started with a lonely so all, beetle yes, it moving did. into dragonflies. It, it did, exactly. Now solitary exactly so. bees. We've been talking with Fred Morrison. Fred is a marvelous naturalist, <laughs> longtime beloved educator in the Northampton uh, schools. Fred, I really wanted to talk about dragonflies and damselflies, but we are Did, out of time. How could that be? And we will have him back. Oh, yes, no. Bill? I want to know about damselflies. Well, we're just going to have to have Fred. <laughs> i got to wait for damselflies? <laughs> You've got to wait. Just <laughs> for, hang in there, buddy. How hey. long do I have to wait to know and about sure damselflies? And, and dragonfly sex is something that Whoa. Is, Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> we can spend the whole show on dragonfly sex. <laughs> Um, Fred, thank you so much for being uh, with us. If folks want to find more information, you have a bunch of books out there. Any website you recommend before we break? Yes, yes. There's a r fantastic one called Discover Life. And uh, you click on that, and you'll just go, go into it, and you'll, you'll see you can learn a ton of things about all kinds of insects. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. And Brian Adams, thank you so much for having this segment. Thank you for bringing Fred Morrison to our studio today. We really appreciate this. It was really interesting. I can't wait to learn more about <laughs> damselflies, but we'll have to talk about that off the air.
taste of honey, a taste of honey, tasting much sweeter. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Sarah Robertson. Holyoke Mayor Josh Garcia will hold a press conference today to announce the city has locked down state funding to build a new middle school. Funding will come from the Massachusetts School Building Authority. This was the final approval the city needed in order to build a new middle school on the site where the William R. Peck School now stands. The Massachusetts School Building Authority has agreed to reimburse $46 million of the cost. The city of Holyoke will be responsible for the remaining $40 million of the total cost, according to the superintendent of Holyoke Public Schools, Anthony Soto. The Greenfield Public Library is now closed as the city prepares to move into a new building. The library's digital resources, virtual programs, and general information remains accessible on the library's website. The new library will open on July 13th, right next door to the current library building, which has been used as the city's library since 1909. The Green River Festival returns in just two days, and organizers are working hard on last-minute preparations. On Friday at 3 p.m., gates will open for the 37th annual event, and around 6,000 people per day are expected in Greenfield at the Franklin County Fairgrounds. Fourteen communities in Massachusetts will receive grants totaling $8,740,000 in competitive EPA Brownfields funding, including several western Massachusetts towns. The money comes from the EPA's Multipurpose Assessment Revolving Loan Fund. The effort is part of the Biden administration's effort to rebuild the nation's infrastructure, support green energy development, and environmental justice. The Franklin Regional Council of Governments has been selected to receive $500,000 for a Brownfields Assessment Grant. The town of Ware will also receive $500,000, as well as multiple projects in Springfield. Mostly cloudy today, chance for some showers, especially middle of the day, a high of 70 to 74. Scattered showers and patchy drizzle likely tonight. Not a total rain out, but it will be damp. Overnight lows of 56 to 62. Mostly cloudy showers, chance for a thunderstorm tomorrow, a high of 76 to 80. Wet over the weekend. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday the Gray Fox Bluegrass Festival? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Gray Fox is the largest bluegrass festival in the Northeast. It's a who's who of bluegrass. Jerry Douglas, Sam Bush, Del McCurry, Sierra Hall, over 40 acts, July 12th to 16th. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. 20 years ago, we envisioned creating a brighter future for people and planet. Now, PV Squared celebrates a big milestone. Two decades of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar projects for homes and businesses in our community. PV Squared is a worker-owned co-op. When you partner with us, you get a team dedicated to the success of your project, from your first meeting to servicing your system down the road. Build solar right and do business better. It's the co-op difference. Learn more at pvsquared.coop. Home buyers contending with a lack of homes for sale got some relief last month as builders broke ground on more houses and ramped up their future development plans. Renters, meanwhile, should also see some relief on rental prices as a wave of new supply hit the market last month. A new Internet scam has popped up that's targeting Americans who are renewing their passports. Security experts have identified phony third-party websites, some claiming to expedite passport renewal for a fee, that seek to steal personal information. Have you noticed that returning a purchased item isn't as easy as it used to be? 
The Wall Street Journal reports more than 60% of retailers are dramatically changing their policies, some eliminating returns completely. Many companies that do take returns now charge a restocking fee. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. This is Bill Newman. Buzz Eisenberg is off today. And this is a very, very, I think, really important and I think interesting segment that we have regularly with Glenn Siegel that we have renamed All That Jazz, but it is the Take 5 segment. So Glenn Siegel has with him and us today a very special guest. The pleasure of the introduction is yours, Glenn. Thank you, Bill. It's really great to be here. Uh, our guest uh, today is David Peachy, who's been uh, performing and teaching music in the Pioneer Valley since 2001. He's an uh, electric and double bass player and uh, works at UMass, among other things in the Valley. Hello. Hey, David. Glenn. Hey, Good Bill. How's it going, man? And uh, David and I were colleagues for many years at the UMass Fine Arts Center. David's still there. I'm retired, uh, where he runs the Jazz in July program. So it's the end of June, so Jazz in July must be right around the corner. So tell us a little bit about Jazz in July, the program, and its really rich history. Yeah, great. Okay, so Jazz in July is a two-week summer program at the UMass Amherst campus. It's run by the UMass Fine Arts Center. Uh it happens in the music department. It's been going on for over 40 years. Started originally by uh, Fred Tillis, Billy Taylor, and Max Roach, uh, back when Dr. Fred Tillis was the director of the Fine Arts Center as well as the uh, Jazz and African American Music Studies in the music department at UMass. Anyway, uh, for so over those 40 years, all sorts of incredible teachers, and, you know, Youssef Latif, Sheila Jordan, uh, Avery Sharp, the list goes on with all these incredible faculty members and people have been coming from all over the the Pioneer Valley, all over the larger you know community, all over the country. People coming from around the world, uh, really to come and and study. It's an intensive improvisation workshop, right? So you show up on Monday and you're already playing your first gig on Wednesday night. You know we have uh, vocalists. We come. We have instrumentalists and small combo settings uh they're rehearsed with a faculty instructor a coach for the week but then they're also doing master classes on their instrument in the afternoons and they're doing improv improvisation workshops with a different faculty member every day uh playing on wednesday night in the campus center playing on friday during the day in the byzantine recital hall and then at the end of the entire program we got an outdoor concert that's uh, co-sponsored by the Amherst Bid as part of their series down in the Amherst Town Common with the entire faculty, the Jazz in July All-Stars concert. Mm, that sounds great. And who are the students who, who typically comes to participate in Jazz in July? Hey, anybody over 15 who wants to learn. You know, I'm, we have uh, a lot of high school students, 15 and up. We've got UMass students that are in the music department uh, and also different college students from uh, beyond our area. We have adults from our community, people who are involved in the Community Music School of Springfield or the Northampton uh, Community Music Center. Uh, any, anybody who wants to play, people coming down from the Vermont Jazz Center as well, you know. 
Can you give us some idea how many people participate in jazz in July at UMass Amherst? Yeah, it depends on the year, you know, and how many people come for the whole program. So sometimes we'll have 50, sometimes we'll have 75. And is this something you pay for? It is, yes. Uh, We do have a great scholarship program, and a lot of people are able to gain access through the scholarships, but there is a tuition fee, registration price, and then there's an option to stay on campus for people, too, so they can get a housing and meal plan where where they want to. Mm-hmm. And how accomplished a musician does one have to be in order to participate? I mean, you make it sound, and I bet you I, can, I want to hear more about this, uh, the, the concert, the performance, but uh, how accomplished do you have to be to be part of this? Because it sounds like you have amazing musicians. Yeah, everybody who comes is incredible, you know, but really... It's not that you have to have accomplished a lot already. You just got really got to want to learn, you know, and we want to make sure that you're at a level where you're going to get the most out of your experience and feel comfortable in the environment. So, you know, play, being able to play some tunes, some, you know, in the standard jazz repertoire, uh, you know, being able to build some chords, uh, if you're a harmony person, uh, being able to play time on a drum set in a couple of different fields, right? But, it, as, I, but as I tell you, just one last question, back to you, Glenn, um, you, you could play guitar, you could play trumpet, you could play uh, any number of instruments. I mean, they're all all instruments welcome? Yeah, I mean, I would say most of the ones that are in it commonly accepted in the jazz language. You know, we don't really usually get into a lot of like tuba, bassoon, <laughs> harp. But yeah. but yeah, you know, piano, <laughs> bass, drums, guitar, uh, saxophone, certainly clarinet players are welcome, flute, uh, trumpet, trombone. If you have a question about it, you just got to reach out and ask me. We'll find a place to put you. Yeah, Glenn. And there, are, there are audition. You have to submit an audition tape to uh, apply. That's right. That's part of the application. There's a written part that's on our website at jazzinjuly.com, and then also you'll be instructed from there to send me an audition recording of two different contrasting style tunes, right? Mm-hmm. And we just want to hear you play and, and make sure that you're in a position where you're going to get the most out of your experience. And then our artistic director. Uh, Jeff Holmes will use those recordings to to pair people into combos of as similar ability levels as possible. Mm-hmm. And is it too late to uh, apply for this year? It is not too late. We okay. uh, we have a lot of people who are signed up and looking forward to coming, but we do have spaces still for vocalists, okay. uh, brass players, guitar, bass, drums. We got a wait list for piano right now, but if you think it's something you want to do, send us an application and Great. get on that wait list. And how does how does uh how does one apply or reach out to you? Yeah, well, through our website, again, at jazzinjuly.com, and you can see the link for to apply right there. Fill it out. My email is on there. If you've got any questions, write me an email. There's a phone number. You know, let's get in touch. Great. And tell us a little bit more about the public-facing part of Jazz in July. If I'm a jazz lover who wants to hear some live music, what are, what are my options? Oh, that's great. Yeah, so we have five different concerts, and they're... Different experiences. You know, like I mentioned the Wednesday nights earlier, when you come out as an audience member to hear Club Jazz in July happen in the top of the campus center at UMass, you walk in on the 11th floor and it's set up like a club. You know, we've got tables and chairs and there's a stage and lights and everything, uh, you know, bar in the back of the room, snacks around, and you can hear short sets from everybody. You know, it's a works in progress concert. So each of the combos is playing for like three songs. Each of the vocalists will get up and sing like one tune. You know, you get to hear from everybody within three hours. The next thing you know, 
you've you've heard you know ninety different people or whatever. So mm-hmm. so that's the Wednesday night experience. And tell us again where that is. That's in the top of the campus center at UMass, the eleventh floor Marriott Center, and that's uh, Wednesday nights at seven p.m. And, uh, and what are the dates, the actual dates of Jazz in July, the 10th? Yep, the, starts on Monday the 10th and goes through Friday the 21st. Okay. So that would make uh, Wednesday the 12th and the 19th. Okay. And then on Fridays, which are what, the 11th and the, no, that's not right. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, on the Fridays during those two weeks, yes. during the day, 14 and 21, July 14 and July 21, you can join us in Byzantium Recital Hall for the end of the week concert. So now you hear something that's filled out a little more, right? The combos will be able to get like a 25-minute set and really kind of get into something together. And each of the vocalists will be able to sing a couple of tunes. You'll also hear from the Jazz in July big band, which otherwise has been rehearsing but isn't performing anywhere else. And sometimes there's a couple special surprises in store. You know, a couple years, Avery Sharp uh, has got all the bass players together and we've heard from a bass ensemble you know, you never know what's going to happen at the Friday show, but that's like all day. Starts at 9 a.m. and it goes usually until about four o'clock. Wow! And that's in the in the recital hall. Even though it's a recital hall, was a, a looser vibe. You know, we kind of got the doors open so that families can come in and and out and be able to hear their people, and all the peers can hear each other, and audience members can feel relaxed about the experience. But mm-hmm. you know, still have a focused stage performance. Um. And then the, the final Friday is the July 21st at 6 p.m. on the Town Common in Amherst. And that's just great. You know, bring a blanket, bring some chairs, bring a cooler, um, and bring food. You know, I know that there's specifically not food vendors at this because they uh, the Amherst bid wants to encourage folks to support the downtown restaurants. So go and get something to go from the downtown and come and eat it in a picnic while you're watching the concert. Mm. That's great. That's so important for people's educational development to play before a live audience. I know you can woodshed for all you want, but communicating for a live audience is really what completes the educational process. Agreed. Having having the having the controlled opportunities to be able to do that, and then bring your people, and you know, be able to perform for the folks you care about. Yeah. Beautiful. So uh, uh, tell us a little bit about um, the faculty. Who's, who's uh, on faculty this year? Is Sheila Jordan still coming? Sheila's still coming. Tell us a little bit about her. She's remarkable. Yeah, so Sheila Jordan you know, is, a part, is a living part of the history of the music. Um, she's been touring the world for ages and has been coming to Jazz in July for over 20 years teaching the vocal workshop over here, you know, and had been performing uh, with the Bright Moments concerts, you know, with her own trio before that. Um, and and as well with her is uh, Catherine Jensen-Hall, who teaches in the UMass Music Department faculty, and Dominique Ede, who you may know. Another. Oh, really? I just presented a concert with her, with Rand Blake, a, f- a few weeks ago. Yeah, man, she's so coming she's back. she's coming. Yep. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, so lots of... Lots of really awesome people to get in touch with. If you're if you're a vocalist, if you're a jazz vocalist, this is like really where you want to be. That's the room you want to be in yeah. with these with these fine uh, singers and Sheila teachers. Jordan's uh, over ninety years old, right? I think ninety four. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's remarkable. Yeah, and is still you know still booking herself. You know, doesn't send me through an agent every time I call and I say, hey, these are the dates. What do you think? And she goes, yeah, put me down. I'm coming. Mm-hmm. You know, no question. 
I have a question for both of you, Glenn Siegel and David Petrie. We hear about UMass Amherst as being this great research university, and it is, and a great teaching university, and it is. And what I have learned from Glenn Siegel is that UMass is actually a center of music. And I'd like to know how and when that came to be, because the musical programming that goes on on that campus, both during the year, during the academic year, and during the summer, is really extraordinary. And I'd appreciate knowing more about that history and and who and why it came to be. Well, it really does have a, a, a rich history. And you mentioned a few names like uh, Fred Tillis and uh, Billy Taylor and Max Roach, who have all passed. They all were uh, integral parts of that history. Um, I actually just met with uh, a, a guy named Joey Barron yesterday, not the drummer Joey Barron, who was a student at Orchard Hill back in the early 70s and produced... Orchard Hill, part of UMass. Yes, yes, one of the residential areas. And he was doing concerts with Alice Coltrane and Pharaoh Sanders and Keith Jarrett Mm. in residential uh, areas in the lounge of Orchard Hill. Wow. uh, With uh, Alan Davis, who's still, who's, uh, uh, still in our area. Um, so the the history goes back decades, yeah. and the African American Studies Department, Afro-Am, uh, had Archie Shep and Reggie Workman uh, on faculty. So, so, so there's a long history, and the history of jazz in July. Could you go back there for that, for that, to that for us, for just for a minute? Okay, sure. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of those folks were involved with the faculty of uh, jazz in July again, in conjunction with the music department. Going people. back how far? Oh, for 1982. Wow. And then, uh, to answer your broader question, in the 70s, you know, when when black students started coming to UMass in uh, in larger numbers and when uh, Philip Romery was the chancellor, who was the first black chancellor, it really opened up culturally the university. So it expanded its far, as far as numbers and uh, and also as far as culturally, it uh, mm-hmm. it really expanded, and that's when jazz really had a foothold at, at the university. So we're uh, gonna break and back with David Peachy after these messages. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Come on over to the co-op, the Greenfield Cooperative Bank. At Greenfield Cooperative Bank, it pays to get pre-approved. If you're looking to buy a home, 
Right now is the perfect time to save up to $1,250 on your mortgage closing costs. We make it easy to apply online at bestlocalbank.com or at any of our branch locations. Our local, experienced mortgage team is happy to walk you through the process so you can get in your new home as quickly and as easily as possible. So apply online or come see us in person and receive a $750 closing credit plus an additional $500 when we pre-approve you. Close by September 30th. Be a new first-time mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender. Member FDIC. Member DIF. You can count on your friends at the Co-op. Summer adventures are where memories are made. Add some flavor to your Massachusetts summer by eating like a local. Few things compare to a good meal at the end of the day, and farm-to-table restaurants deliver with fresh, locally sourced produce prepared to perfection by skilled chefs. Support local farmers and restaurants by planning a special night out with friends or family. Need some inspiration? Map your fresh food adventure at eatlikealocalinma.org. Sponsored by Mass Farmers Markets. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. This is our All That Jazz segment with Glenn Siegel, who has with him and us today a very special guest. The microphone is yours, Glenn. Thank you, Bill. David Peachy is our guest, who is a, a great bass player, plays both electric and upright bass. So tell us about your musical education. It involves uh, jazz in July. It does, yeah. I mean, I started playing uh, music when I was 10 years old, started playing trumpet, and I started bass right after that and came through. I had musical opportunities at my school. and had um, you know My parents helped me get some private lessons. And all my friends played and then uh, came to college. I did two years at Holyoke Community College studying music and that great program. Transferred over to UMass and it was the summer in between transferring from HCC to UMass Amherst that I had my first experience with jazz in July. Mm-hmm. And obviously that was a positive experience? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was incredible. You know, I was, uh, I was a scholarship recipient and, uh, you know, through the HCC program, and I came in for the two weeks at Jazz in July, and I got to work with, you know, Billy Taylor, Chip Jackson, Winard Harper, uh, you know, Professor Jeff Holmes, and Catherine Jensen Hole, and the UMass faculty who was there. Uh, man, Adam Coker was up there at the time, and and uh, between the clinics and the rehearsals and the performances, and and Dr. Fred Tillis was still involved with uh, teaching at that program then too. It was really uh, you know life changing experience. David, you said you started playing instruments when you were 10? That's right. What instrument and why? Well, the trumpet, and it's because my dad had one. <laughs> and then I started playing the bass because all my friends played guitar, and I was in everybody's band immediately. A rock and roll band? That's right. Of course. Yeah. So you, you, you didn't start with an upright bass, you started with an electric bass? It was electric bass, that's right, electric bass guitar. And from the electric bass, you went to the stand-up bass? It was, yeah, not till college. Uh, you because know, it's the same tuning. It's the same tuning, yet there's a lot of similarities. It's the same role in the music, you know. It's just a different instrument. But uh, when I was going to Holyoke Community College playing electric bass, and they said, well, if you want to transfer to UMass, you got to play a double bass because they don't take electric bass majors. <laughs> and I was playing jazz music anyway. I, like, I wanted to learn it anyway. So, uh, you know, so I borrowed one from the school, and then I bought one, and, uh, you know, spent hours, spent spring break in my dad's basement squeaking away with the bow and stuff, yeah. Wow. 
And uh, you also teach at some other area institutions, including Amherst College and the Vermont Jazz Center. Um, tell us about that. You're, you're really an educator at heart. Oh, yeah, I love teaching. I love spending time with people who want to learn, you know, which is one of the pleasures about being involved with Jazz in July. I don't actually teach there. I just got to make it all happen. But, it, you know, it's very special to me because of this. Uh, yeah, I teach at Amherst College uh, bass lessons, and I also coach small jazz combos. So you get to work with me over there. At uh, the Vermont Jazz Summer, at the Vermont Jazz Center Summer Workshop, I'm a accompanist for the vocalists. So I don't actually teach there. I just got to hang out, and I get to hang out with Sheila Jordan and Jay Clayton for a week and just play bass with all the singers who are studying with them. Mm-hmm. Great. So I just see the uh, Fine Arts Center just released its uh, 2023-24 season schedule, which includes a lot of great jazz, and I know you historically been involved in those decisions and uh, involved with the visiting jazz prof- uh, professionals. Who's coming this year? Well, uh, we'll look forward to seeing uh, Branford Marsalis in the fall, as well as Emmett Cohen with his trio as part of the Billy Taylor Jazz Residency. So he'll be here for a few days engaging with students in our community. And uh, Ranky Tanky. And then in the spring, we'll hear the, the Blue Note 85th anniversary, you know, featuring some incredible players, uh, jo- uh, Joel Ross, Emmanuel Wilkins, among others. And then uh, in April, as part of, uh, part of the High School Jazz Festival at UMass, will be the... Mingus Dynasty Band. Mm. So it'd be a seven-piece band playing, playing Mingus tunes. You know, with guys who have been in that band for twenty years. Some of them, you know. Yeah. So we're uh, starting to wrap up here on all that jazz. So David, tell us again how to uh, reach you, how to get involved in jazz in July, and how, how to, to sign up if you want to come and learn. Exactly. And then where are the public concerts and when? Absolutely. Go, start by going and visiting our website at jazzinjuly.com. That's got the information for how to get in touch. You can apply to the program on that page. And there's the concert listings for our performances are all on that page. You can see the Wednesday nights at Club Jazz in July and the UMass Campus Center, 11th floor, 7 p.m. The Friday daytime performances, again, of the Jazz in July participants. That's the Jazz Futures concert starting at 9 a.m. in Byzantium Recital Hall. And then July 21st on the Amherst Town Common with the Rain Location and Balker Auditorium at UMass. Uh, that's a 6 p.m. start time with a Jazz Jazz in July All-Stars concert, you know, featuring what, Sheila, everybody we mentioned, right? Sheila, uh, Steve Davis is going to be up. Christian Sands will be here. Luis Perdomo, Earl McDonald. Uh, the list goes on. It is an all-star cast. Yes. Mm. It is indeed. And again, the website yeah. is? Jazzinjuly.com. Great. David Petrie, thanks so much for joining us. And Glenn Siegel, thanks so much for bringing David. Really <laughs> appreciate it. <laughs> thanks, yeah. guys, for having me. what's going on in business in Western Mass? You do if you read Business West. Find out which companies are growing, which companies are innovating. Learn about people on the move, people taking the lead. Every issue of Business West is packed with business news, including incorporations, building permits, real estate transactions, and bankruptcies. Pick up a copy or read Business West online. The vital business news is in Business West, the business journal of Western Mass. 
It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Get informed, then get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 1401-1400-1240. WHMP. WHMP 